Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. On this edition of the program, something a little different. An in-depth discussion with KPMG's forensics partner, Dean Mitchell. I still do a lot of traditional fraud work. You know, my background is very much investigation, so unfortunately, all too often, Australian companies fall victim to, to fraud. Uh, we don't hear a lot about it in the press because often companies don't want to make it public. You know, we've just lost $10 million. How on earth is, has this happened? Who's done it? How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? And that's, that's much of what I do today. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Well, battling corporate fraud, bribery and complex compliance issues are the focus of my next guest, former New South Wales police officer and KPMG partner in forensics, Dean Mitchell. He leads the firm's anti-bribery and corruption services, working to prevent anti-competitive behaviour, fraud and corruption. To hear all about it, I caught up with him earlier. Dean Mitchell, welcome to the program. Thanks, Whitney. Great to be with you. So as an 18-year-old in the police academy, you had a formative moment with one of the commanders. What what did he say? I, I remember it very clearly. I was 18, sitting at the police academy, not knowing much about New South Wales beyond Newcastle, where I grew up. Uh, and he came down to the police academy and he was trying to encourage people to come to Bankstown, which at the time was suffering a fairly serious crime challenge. Mm-hmm. And he came into to the room and, and he sat down and said, look, if you people are serious uh, about criminal investigation and policing, then you probably should come to Bankstown. If you're a doctor, you go to where people are sick. If you want to be a detective or a police officer, then you might as well come to where people are committing crime. And that made a lot of sense to me. And that day, without even knowing where Bankstown was or the crime problem I was suffering, I decided to go to Bankstown. And that probably changed, certainly changed my policing career, but probably changed a lot of what I did in the future. So I take it you were happy with that decision, even though you didn't know much about Bankstown? I certainly did a lot of reading over the next few days about mm-hmm. uh, about Bankstown and, and what was happening there. And there was some really violent crime occurring and you know, police stations were being shot at, if, if you remember, back in, in those days in, mm-hmm. in 1997. Uh, so I, I did think... Uh, Perhaps I hadn't made the right decision for a few days when I had to explain that to to my mother that I'd decided to go to to Bankstown to be a police officer. But looking back, uh, no, I certainly don't regret it. And how did it change your policing career? So I was able to do things in a relatively short period of time that that probably would have otherwise taken years. Fast forward 11 months from my uh, first day at Bankstown Mm -hmm. as a uniformed uh, probationary constable. Uh, And 11 months later... Uh, I was working in the detective's office, uh, training to be a a detective. Mm. And that's something that normally would take uh, a number of years. But to be able to do that in 11 months uh, and and also what you see, I think probably what what I saw in those first 11 months uh, was what people in other uh, police stations or local area commands would have probably taken many years to experience. So it was a pretty steep learning curve. And you would have been very young. I mean, what, you were a detective by the time you were 20? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, how, how did that affect you as a young adult? I think there's two elements. You know, uniform policing is pretty tough. You know, I remember after probably three or four months uh, after I left the police academy as a, as a 19-year-old, 
uh, being sent on Christmas Day to to deliver some pretty grim news to a to a family uh, about their son who wouldn't be returning to them. And that's you know as a nineteen year old, you don't realise how that's going to affect you probably for a number of years. But you know I sit here twenty five years later, and certainly that's never left me. Mm. Um, and then criminal investigation is different because you mightn't necessarily be exposed to the traumatic incidents that um, that the uniform police might engage in but you spend a lot more time with crooks uh, mm. and you spend a lot more time with informants and you really get to see uh, that darker side of human behaviour, which is, it was certainly, uh, I remember it being very confronting. So a few years in, you were working on organised crime. What insights did that give you into what motivates a person to break the law? Even otherwise, outwardly good people commit crime. And, you know, there's a matter that that. I worked on for a number of years as part of a much bigger team where we were investigating a syndicate who were trafficking guns into Sydney from northern New South Wales and Queensland. And that was fascinating because I'd spent the first 12 months of my career seeing what violent gun crime did on the street as a uniformed officer. And now in organised crime, three or four years later, I could see how those guns were getting in and being used. And I think we all, when when we hear about that type of crime, we have a a visual of, of who's committing it, you know, who, who's smuggling these guns across the borders, who's putting them in the hands of these criminals. As it turns out, the syndicate that was doing it was a bunch of farmers in northern New South Wales <laughs> who were otherwise law-abiding citizens, had never been in trouble with the police before, and here they were uh, involved in a really complex syndicate of sourcing guns, trafficking guns, knowing full well, because we could hear them on listening devices and telephone intercepts, they knew who they were selling these guns to, but just didn't care. So was their motivation money? Was that what it was? It was purely money. Right. Yeah, like okay. it, that was purely money. Did you ever go undercover? So I didn't do undercover work, but we certainly used undercover operatives to buy, in this case, it was actually rocket launchers that were uh, acquired from uh, other sources. It was firearms, machine guns, and they were going in and buying them. So watching that and, and watching that deception, using some of that deception for good, uh, was, was a really intriguing. I'm wondering when you're telling me this, because you've seen the real deal, right? Do you ever watch crime and dramas? And if you do, do you, do you just go, oh, that wouldn't happen. No, that wouldn't happen. Oh, that's actually pretty accurate. I, I never watched them when I was doing the work. Mm. Today, I'm, I'm a bit of a, you know, a, a streaming TV binge addict, so I, I do watch some of them. And look, the way I describe it is it's all pretty accurate, mm. but what they do is they collapse what takes six months or two years into 60 minutes Mm. and what a team of 30 detectives are doing into two detectives with a a swaggy suit and a a quiff of the hair and (laughs) uh, a bit of a dramatic view that uh, I'm sure that I didn't look like that at 23 and I'm I'm pretty sure most people I I worked with didn't look like that either. Did you stay in Bankstown or did you move around when you were in the force? So I spent about the first two or three years uh, at Bankstown, mm-hmm. three or four years at Bankstown. Then I moved to organised crime. So in organised crime, we looked after all of New South Wales, which meant spending a lot of time travelling around. Uh, and then at uh, the final uh, couple of years, I actually worked for the, for the police commissioner and uh, worked with him in uh, media and policy advice. So I got to see the other side of policing from an organisational perspective, which was really different to what I'd been doing for the, for the nine years earlier. I was there again at a really interesting time. I, I look back at my life and just think so many things just seemed to happen when I was around. So that's a good thing or a mm. bad thing. Mm. But when I was working uh, there, we had the uh, Macquarie Fields riots following the tragic death of, a, uh, of an individual following a police pursuit. 
Rocks thrown at police and four people arrested as alcohol-charged teenagers verge on rioting over the deaths of their friends. Yeah, there were mattresses on fire, there were police being pelted with rocks, and the media was really quite critical of the police response at the time. Mm. So my role there was to, to help uh, understand what happened after the event. So how was, you know, did the police respond appropriately? Could they have done something differently? So again, looking back at, at what happened and what went wrong, mm. and also looking at how things could have been done differently from perhaps a community engagement perspective. Could we, as an organisation, have done more to engage the community earlier? You know, were our tactics right? Mm. Really interesting post-event assessments. And I bet working with the commissioner, the deputy commissioner, it would have also given you a real insight into the close interest section between policing and politics. Uh, they are very closely related. It's something that I, I never appreciated till I, I worked in that office. Mm. And the influence not only um, politicians obviously have on, on policing, but media personalities have on policing. Yeah, that was a, an area where there were a number of AM uh, radio hosts who were quite uh, colourful in their description of, of policing uh, and not shy to, to give a view. And the influence that has and, and how that f finds its way into operational decisions uh, was really, really quite fascinating. Mm. There's this really interesting relationship between journalists and police officers. You kind of need each other, but you're also very suspicious of each other. Is that kind of your view of it as well? Yeah, look, it is. I think everyone's got a job to do. So it's mm. how you go about that and how you do it. But especially in criminal investigations, it's a little bit different because... Often journalists uh, will come across a major investigation uh, that you're doing. And if they were to publish that, then that whole investigation could be compromised. You know, people's yeah. lives could be at risk. We could have undercover operatives in play who, you know, who could really be uh, quite vulnerable or just a, a serious crime could not be solved. So having that kind of conversation with a journalist to say, look, look, I know this is a great story and look, you'll get it. Uh, but if you publish it now, this is what will happen. Uh, that also, you know, policing is all about people. So whether it's crooks, informants, victims, politicians, radio shock jocks uh, or journalists, it, it's really mm. about understanding what drives those people. So what is it that they need to get out of this and how can how can we work that we both get what we need out of, out of this interaction? So for a journalist, it might be, look, we'll give you the story, we'll give you a heads up just before something happens, um, but you can't publish this for six months and this is why. And then it's a case of trust. After a decade with the police, you left. Why, why did you decide to leave? Look, I think the, there comes a time, and, and I was just prior to, to leaving the police force, I was spending a lot of time in uh, child protection work and I'd come home to, to my partner at the time and we were painting a house and uh, he and I were both up on a trellis and I just burst out in tears and I, it's not, I'm not a particularly emotional person and I just yeah. was inconsolable and I just couldn't get certain things out of my head and I, I looked at him and, and he sort of said, look, I think it's enough. Uh, and I think that's, you know, it's important because it's something we in law enforcement traditionally don't talk about and often to our own peril. You know, there are, I know many people who have, you know, suffered for many years afterwards because they probably stayed a bit too long. There's really interesting, there's a correlation there with journalists as well. We don't talk about the trauma, generally speaking, that, that what we see, you know, because we, we are usually on the front line of um, disasters and you're unable to deal with it, I think. Uh, I think that's so true. I think... For me, it was never the gore 
uh, it was the, the protracted engagements. You know, it was where you would sit opposite uh, someone who had just committed a you know horrendously violent crime or mm. or committed something that was or done something that was just just horrendous that we wouldn't even think about. Mm. And you have to almost normalize their behavior because if they feel that you're going to judge them or if they feel that you're going to be antagonistic or not understand them, they're not going to tell you what they've done. And that means that, you know, in the future, sadly, that victims are going to have to spend days, sometimes weeks in the witness box reliving you know, their experience. But that takes a toll, you know, and I think that was one of the things that really took a, a serious toll on me was just you know, sitting there normalising sort of this horrendous behaviour. How did your experience in the force and particularly working around organised crime, how did that experience shape the way you, you think about risk? It's interesting. I think in policing uh, and criminal investigation, you make snap judgments, mm. both in terms of criminal investigations, you know, and also uh, from a safety perspective. But sometimes you get it wrong. Uh, and I think with risk, what I've probably learned over the years is taking a bit more time to understand what's really going on, uh, as opposed to those snap judgments. Although you're right most of the time, when you get it wrong, you get it catastrophically wrong. Uh, and it's normally people or events that you think present a significant risk, then you'll find out two or three months later, mm, no, I got that wrong. They're actually a, a good person or, or that's not actually uh, the risk that I saw because I perhaps am a little bit jaded from you know, some of those negative experiences and that badness that, that I've seen over the years. So today you advise on fraud and corruption and bribery. What takes up most of your time? Companies, Australian companies, are increasingly doing business in far-flung parts of the world um, where they're not familiar with the culture, they're not familiar with the way things are done, and they're very vulnerable to corrupt government officials demanding bribes and kickbacks. Mm -hmm. I, I remember I travelled to, to a West African country I think it was uh, three planes, one helicopter and, uh, and a four-wheel drive trip. So we were pretty remote at the stage. And we were there to do something else. And he said, oh, he called me into his office. He said, oh, Dean, uh, we've got a problem. He said, well, this machinery has broken down and we can't operate without it. This is costing literally millions of dollars per day. And the customs officials said, we know you need this. And unless you pay us X amount of dollars, and it was only pretty modest, five, dollars $10,000, you're not getting it and your mind's staying closed. So you either pay me this bribe uh, or you stay closed. And that really crystallises many of the issues we do, we'll deal with on a daily basis, right? Mm. So people, you can think about, oh, paying bribes is bad, you know, it's really, you know, we shouldn't do it, and it's, you know, of course, illegal. Mm -hmm. But then there's, you know, there's, those decisions are much more complex than that. You know, if this mine site stays closed, if these people at the mine site don't get work, you know, there's a, a massive impact on the company... And so that really challenges, you know, companies and an individual's values. What's the right thing to do? Mm. And it's not always as clear cut as it might seem on the outside. And in this case, what was the right thing to do? Did he pay the bribe? It wasn't the advice that I gave them, uh, mm. but the, the mine did eventually open and they worked its way through. But the problem with that, right, is if, if you do pay the bribe, then it's going to happen next time. Yeah. So you, you just kick the problem down the road a little bit. Mm -hmm. So most of my, my work these days is helping companies avoid that. So how can they you know, not put them in a position to pay those bribes? How can they 
how can they respond when they get asked and and helping them sort of prevent that occurring. So that's, I guess, the corruption side of what I do. Um, then back at home, uh, I, I still do a lot of traditional fraud work. You know, my background is very much investigation. So unfortunately, uh, all too often, Australian companies fall victim to, to fraud. Uh, we don't hear a lot about it in the press because often companies don't want to make it public. So we spend a lot of time working with organisations to respond to that fraud. So uh, we've just lost $10 million. How on earth is, has this happened? Who's done it? How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? And mm-hmm. that's that's much of what I do today. And is the statement, the, the, or the cliche, follow the money in terms of investigation true? Always follow the money. That, that is absolutely mm-hmm. true because particularly when it comes to fraud, the motivation is money. It's always money. Other crime is different. Violent crime or gang-related crime uh, is often about power, influence, control. Fraudsters are doing it for the money. Uh, So Mm -hmm. you're right. If you follow the money, because they've got to spend it, um, and fraudsters spend it, Um, (laughs) unlike some other crooks. (laughs) You know, I remember investigating armed robberies back in the early days where people would rob an armoured vehicle uh, and then literally bury the money for five or six years because they knew as soon as they started to spend it, then we'd find them. Uh, and fraudsters spend it because it's a lifestyle. I, I remember a, a matter I was doing uh, a number of years ago where there was a, a accounts person who was paid you know, a, a very modest salary, but for, for six to 12 months, they'd come to work and they were wearing sort of brand name clothes. They were showering people at work with extravagant gifts. They took the whole office out on a uh, on a cruise down the river. They bought a prominent share in a basketball company in the uh, Australian Basketball <laughs> League. So it turns out they'd ripped four and a half million dollars out of an organisation and no one, you know, no one sort of raised an eyebrow because they liked that person. And, and that's the that's the thing that fraudsters do. They are tricksters of trust. And then people just explain it away. Like, oh, look, Whitney would never do that. She's a lovely person. She'd never commit fraud. In reality, all the time, Whitney's taking all this money out of the organisation. Which isn't true, Dean. Come on, let's, let's, let's qualify that one. I'm, I'm still waiting um, for my, uh, my, lu- my luxurious <laughs> gifts, Whitney. That's right. You've recently launched a podcast called Forensic Lens. So can you just tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, look, Forensic Lens, we, we sat down, we thought, you know, everyone likes to know about fraud and corruption and deception, but we often don't hear it from people who are there. You know, we don't hear from mm, those mm-hmm. detectives, That we don't hear from the lawyers, we don't hear from the corporate regulators. What's their perspective? You know, what are some of their stories and, and how does it happen? Because when we start talking about that, like we are today, uh, people are more alert to it. You know, people are, oh, actually, that could happen. And, oh, I've seen those warning signs or that is why people commit fraud. But it's also pretty interesting. You know, one of the guests we had on was a, a forensic psychologist and he spent quite a bit of time mm. talking about corporate psychopaths and who they are. And you know, who doesn't want to know if there's a corporate psychopath in their organisation, right? It's, uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. What do you think is behind this true crime wave? You know, we've got lots of true crime podcasts. I mean, Serial was, you know, a big hit. Then there was Trace here locally. Um, what do you think drives that? I, I think people are just naturally curious. People... Mm can't drive past an accident without having a look, right? They're, they're interested, even though what they're going to see is horrendous and graphic, people still slow down and have a look. I think there's also a fascination with, you know, the darker side of, of human of human behaviour. What makes mm. people do this? And 
it's interesting to hear how you know, how this crime unfolds and how crooks come unstuck and, and how it's done because you know, often you know, we don't see this in our daily lives. You know, 98% of us would go through life not being a, a cop or a lawyer or a crook, right, we would hope. Uh, and mm-hmm. so to, to hear about how you know, how police will put listening devices in someone's house and will tap your phone and will put tracking devices on your car or on your handbag and maybe plant an undercover operative to get a story from you. It's just kind of fascinating and we all like to, to know how it's done. And as you said, not many people actually have the experience that, you know, someone from the force or a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, a criminal, but you have. So does that actually colour your view of the world? Do you pick up on things that other people don't pick up on? Do you Are you constantly on watch or is that something that you've been able to kind of let go of? No, definitely. I think if, if you asked my husband that question, you'd get a, <laughs> a very clear answer. Still to this day, you know, I've been out of the police force now for 13 or 14 years. Every time I walk into a restaurant, you know, I always sit with my back to the wall so I can see what's going on uh, around the restaurant. There'll be times where I'll walk down the street and you just see something unfolding in front of you and you just might move to the other side of the street. And you're right, you know, as you walk Mm. past, a a brawl breaks out or or something happens and I I can't explain what that is. It's just, you know, 10 years of uh, of doing that in, in a policing context, that stuff gets ingrained in you. And it's something that you just can't switch off. You, know, you don't you don't finish work at six pm mm. and and switch that off. And that's not always a healthy thing because you know you do. Look, I think not so much now. It's been a while since I've been out, but you just expect people to be not telling you the truth or not telling the whole story, right? You just expect people to lie to you, and yeah, normal people don't do that. Yeah, normal people don't expect uh, people to <laughs> be constantly lying to them. And I'm like. Mm. Look, there must be a motive there. Why is that person doing that? And that's, uh, look, that's again, helpful in this line of work, uh, but perhaps not so helpful in your personal life. Dean Mitchell, thank you for joining the program. Thanks, Whitney. Pleasure. All right. Well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the program. If you want to check out Dean's podcast, look for Forensic Lens on Spotify or Apple. Until next time, thanks for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Podcasts.